people are making all these sorts of inferences, even like homophobia and transphobia. I mean, I grew up in Sydney. I spent most of the 90s, you know, dancing on podiums up and down Oxford Street, uh, going to warehouse raves where it's, you know, open seat, like whoever can come along and no one cared what you wore or you had boys in makeup, men in dress, whatever, no one cared. So the fact that there were all these inferences being made because I, that I accept the reality that biological sex exists and that it matters in certain contexts and women and girls have the right to female only spaces. But obviously that particular position is in direct opposition with, you know, the so-called progressive left. Welcome to the New Place Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro and with me is Ricky Allpike. How are you, Ricky? I'm good, thanks. Uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever played sport against against a woman? <laughs> well, um, well, not, not professionally. <laughs> but, um... I, I used to play mixed netball. Really? You were a mixed netball guy? For a little while, yeah. I've got to say, uh, I slayed. <laughs> okay. Well, you 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 should you you should have just waited. You could have gone pro. I could have. In yeah. Twenty twenty two. I know. It wouldn't even have to be mixed. You could just do straight I know. up. I know. I retired too early. Yeah, I know. Well, um, just before we talk to our wonderful guest today, Catherine Deves, uh, I full disclosure, um, I've got COVID nineteen. So that's okay. I don't think you can catch it via podcast. You can't, but I'm definitely off my game. And, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all just a 5G conspiracy. Hashtags pandemic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? So anyway, we'll, we'll, that's for another time. All right, let's get into it. Catherine Deves is an Australian lawyer who ran as a Liberal candidate for the federal seat of Warringah in the 2022 Australian federal election. She co-founded Save Women's Sport Australasia, which is part of an international coalition of women's organisations, athletes and supporters of women in sport who assert that male athletes should not compete in female sport. She's here to talk about her personal story, the issue of trans athletes and the rights of women and girls more broadly. Catherine, welcome to The New Flesh. Thank you, Ricky and John. So, Catherine, earlier this year, I feel like I was in the position of many people out there in that I went from not knowing you to hearing your name every day <laughs> of my life. So perhaps <laughs> you, could, you mm-hmm. could run us through your rather spectacular introduction to politics. Oh, right. So it was a very strange feeling to find yourself being, you know, a relative unknown, sort of known within particular uh, sort of activist circles and then being the most reported on candidate, second only to the Prime Minister. Uh, so I had rejoined the Liberal Party um, at the end of 2021, uh, the second half of 2021, and um, I had seen that the Liberal Women's Council had been doing some interesting work, putting out some interesting policy papers. I had friends within the party and I thought, mm, I'm going to rejoin and start attending the women's meetings. And they kept asking women to put their hands up to run. Um, and I'd always sort of thought my great-grandfather was a senator. I'd always had a great interest in politics. You know, maybe at some point I'd like to put my hand up. Um but they kept asking. So I thought, oh, well, you know what, I'll just put in my nomination form uh, for Warringah and just see what happens. It's a good way to maybe get to know more people within the conference, get to know the party processes, have some opportunities to public speak. Um, and to my very great surprise, uh, they chose me. Uh, I was running against two long-term 
ma- uh, party members who were males, and I thought for sure one of them would probably be picked. Um, but when I got the co- and obviously there was all that drama with the Kamenzuli case that went to the New South Wales Supreme Court, where certain conferences were being denied the plebiscite that they had been fighting for for a number of years. So to then come in as a captain's pick, um, that was never my choice. I was happy to fight the plebiscite, be selected on the basis of a democratic vote, um, which I didn't think I was really going to win, and then, you know, potentially run the second race as the actual candidate. Um, But then when I got the phone call that Saturday morning and I said, oh... Oh dear. Okay. Um, shit's just gotten really real. Um, and I said, can I go for a walk with my husband and kids and dog for a couple of hours and then I'll come back and I'll call you and, and tell me next steps because I know everything's going to be different. Um, and then obviously things took off at a, a rate of knots. Um, so, you know, getting everyone together for the campaign team um, being briefed by headquarters on what was expected of me, looking at fundraising. So it was basically you're running on all cylinders straight away. Um, and I knew I was going to have issues within the conference um, because people were very dismayed at not having the plebiscite. So for that reason, you know, there are a lot of members on the ground who, who didn't want to support the campaign and I totally understand that position. Um, you know, I knew I had some... I wouldn't have even said controversial at that time, views with respect to the sex and gender debate. Um, You know, I've been an advocate out there saying women and girls have the right to a female-only sports category, and polling does show in all Western countries that the vast majority of people agree with me. Um, But one thing the party does say is you are now a candidate. You're basically owned by the party. (laughs) So if you have personal social media... You know, we, we can't tell you what to do, but we just advise you to take it down. It can be a security risk. You know, the candidate, you have, have to represent our views. So so I did. I took down um, all my social media uh, as instructed, but uh, little did I know there had been a hacker by the name of Travis Brown who had been involved in the Twitter open source uh, project and was actually a former Twitter employee, I understand. Um, and he'd set up a bot to capture each one of my tweets as I'd posted. So even tweets that I'd, where I'd written them and I went, oh, maybe I need to fact check that or there's a grammatical error, I'll just quickly delete that and rewrite it. Um, so he'd collated a file that he'd uploaded onto GitHub, which is publicly available. Um, and I'd been on a hit list of women um, and supporters of women. I think they're up to about 5,000 people now. It's um, a publicly available list on Google Docs. Um, it lists all us disobedient women and how to dox us, how to get us kicked off social media. They ke- they track who they managed to get banned off social media and so on. So obviously I was on that hit list. So um, Travis Brown and his trans rights activists and men's rights activists were waiting for an opportunity to bring down women like me. Um, so they had the tweets and somehow they ended up in the hands of certain journalists and they had a field day just dropping them like bombs about a week into the the campaign and uh, going through every single interview I'd ever done and just taking fragments of sentences, decontextualising everything and just weaving it all together into this narrative and then um, putting it out there into the media. And as it sort of started escalating 
as a candidate, like I was one of a field of, I think, about 150 candidates, local candidates, you are allowed to do um, as much local media um, as you like. But when it comes to national platforms, you need to run it through HQ. And that there's a few of reasons. It's to make sure you're on message, make sure what you're saying is not detracting from the policy focus of the day. Um, and generally, the only people who speak to national media are, you know, the, the ministers or the prime minister. So I was sort of stuck in this weird situation where my campaign had achieved national prominence, but I was still having to conduct myself like the local candidate, which I continued to do behind the scenes, very quietly, out on the hustings, handing out flyers at bus stops and train stations, door knocking businesses. Um, you know, I did that pretty much every day, except when things were really at their zenith in the media and, you know, the online abuse and hate and the threats were coming through. And that's sort of when I, I did um, uh, take refuge in a friend's house outside of the electorate, um, sort of trying to wait for it to, to die down. And I think in hindsight, if I'd maybe fought to say, look, let me have some of these national broadcasting interviews, even going to the ABC, who um, were, you know, having a field day bashing me, and, and let them ask the questions that they want to ask, and let's just get it out on the table, and then hopefully they'll move on to whatever the next scandal is the next day. But I think because I didn't address anything um, in the way that they wanted me to, well, the media wanted me to, they just really you know, it, they, they just were frothing. They just blew it up into this huge, big scandal um, when I think it probably could have been managed in a better way, you know, with the luxury of a bit of hindsight, I think. Well, is there is there a special brand of disdain for women in, in the public who don't follow the script? Because I get a sense that, that people in the media class are so desperate to have that progressive project triumph uh, that they can't be seen to be giving one inch to someone with an opposing viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, Exhibit A. <laughs> you know? um, and, you know, all sorts of things were said about me that are just, they're just not true, you know. Um, there were inferences being made with respect to reproductive rights, with respect to religion. You know, I, I don't, I don't have a religion that I necessarily practice. You know, I was raised Catholic Um I probably I could say that I rejected all religion, um, organised religion in my youth, but as I've sort of, with a bit of wisdom and lived experience, um, you know, people should be entitled to have their religious beliefs, but um, people are making all these sorts of inferences, even like homophobia and transphobia. I mean, I grew up in Sydney. I spent most of the 90s, you know, dancing on podiums up and down Oxford Street. Uh, going to warehouse raves where it's, you know, open seat, like whoever can come along and no one cared what you wore or you had boys in makeup, men in dress, whatever, no one ca cared. So the fact that there were all these inferences being made because I have a belief that, well, that I accept the reality that biological sex exists and that it matters in certain contexts and women and girls have the right to female-only spaces... But obviously that particular position is in direct opposition with, you know, the so-called progressive left. So, um, I mean, that, that it's quite an extraordinary space to be in the way the argument has developed, the debate has developed, and the fact that we've got these people who want to remove um, the concept of sex, like denude all law and policy 
of the concept of sex and just make everything based on this ephemeral gender identity, which is also a concept that hasn't existed, you know, it didn't exist 30 years ago. Um, and if you are counter to that narrative, you know, then they'll just infer all sorts of things and they'll just come after you and then everything that you say about any other issue is is dismissed and if yeah they they will they'll try to destroy you you know they'll they'll come after you with death threats they'll try and get you fired from your job uh they'll try and get you kicked off all social media they will data mine your life and reach out to every organization you've got any contact with they'll come after your not like just my own children but my extended family members uh, their businesses, uh, it's extraordinary the lengths that they will go to to destroy you if you are not following the prevailing paradigm. Can you give us your current perspective on the tweets themselves? Look, when I was tweeting, I think at one point Tony Abbott explained to me, you know, Twitter's basically like the back of the dunny door these days and I'm like, I think you might be right, you know. in On Twitter, like I... I was not expecting to enter the national prominence. I honestly didn't think that a lot of what I was saying, when it was in context, was that inflammatory. And I'd sort of been involved in this well, this debate, following it for quite a number of years. So I think, you know, I mean, I'd had people come after me prior and try and get me fired from my job. So if you say, uh, like the tweet where I said, I am triggered by the pride flag. The reason I said that, you know, I've been to Mardi Gras. I have... Gay and lesbian people through my friends and family, no issue at that. But it was the flag itself because every time someone would come after me um, or dish out abuse online or write a letter and I'd go and look them up online, they would always have a pride flag in their bio, Mm. almost without exception, and pronouns in bio. So whenever I'd see something like that, I would. I'd go, oh, God, what are they going to do? What are they going to say? Ukraine flag? You know, uh didn't mention anything about the Ukraine flag, no. Okay, all no. right. <laughs> they need the full no. suite, the pronouns. Yeah. The, <laughs> the black fist. The black yeah. fist. Yeah, the BLM, um, you know, then their se- whatever their sexuality is, probably with quite a variety of them sometimes. Like I heard, what is it, litho-romantic the other day. I was Goodness like, me, oh, what's that's that? a new one. What does that mean? Oh, that, that's when you have a crush on someone and it's not reciprocated but you're okay with that. And I'm like, <laughs> isn't that... My Every teenager who's ever lived. It's my high school career. There it is. I was a litho, whatever, litho-sexual. So I think, look, I mean, some people might have still found me saying that offensive. And, look, I I accept that. Um, You know, the one with the Holocaust uh, where I, that was a particularly difficult one. Like, I was really distraught at, They'd gone through an interview that I'd had and uh, we'd been discussing the rise of totalitarianism and fascist regimes and basically, you know, something that had always fascinated me was what needs to be happening in society, socially, economically, politically, to get to the point that we end up with a mass genocide of, of people. And when you look at, you know, like Stasi Germany, Stalin, uh, Stalinist Germany, you know, um, Weimar Germany leading to Nazi Germany, it's always things like people start to be silenced. They start to lose their jobs for their political views. You can only get a job if you're aligned with the party, that kind of thing. And I was sort of drawing that inference between what's happening with the so-called progressive left, you know, the the gender argument, and how 
you know, we're seeing echoes of that, people being punished. And then I used a rather clumsy analogy actually referring to Nazi Germany and it was and it was that that turned into that whole thing about the Holocaust. And I was like, oh, God. And, you know, I had quite lengthy discussions with people that I, I trusted because I said, but, you know, this has come from a place of a lifelong curiosity in, in mid-century European history and going to the Anne Frank house and reading Anne Frank as a 12-year-old girl and reading all the books from the Holocaust and it was not meant to be disrespectful or offensive. You know, oh, my God, I was quite distraught about that and um you know and one friend said yes but you you do understand some people think that any inferences or, or analogies drawn with Nazi Germany are going to find that offensive and it took me a while to really appreciate what she meant and you know because we still see leaders uh, I mean Dan Andrews did in the election talking about his political opponents as, as Nazis I see journalists on the left inferring Nazism with like Trumpists and you know it's sort of it's allowed in certain segments of the conversation mm. but the fact that I said it and I was being perceived as this sort of right-wing Christian woman who who hates trans and gays um I got flamed for it and um it was really hard to see some of these arguments that I spent quite a lot of time like lots of years developing sort of just being snippets of it just bastardized I've just thought about it like you know it must be you really did have the super trooper just or the spotlight just on you, you know, like like what <laughs> what does that feel like when suddenly, you know, every little thing that you've said, every person you've ever offended or every ex-partner you've ever, you know, I don't know, whatever, oh, <laughs> you know, like all of that suddenly is on the table and you've got all these very excited journalists, um, you know, pouring over everything. What's What's that like? Well, I was worried, you know, my biggest worry was, oh, you know, I, I partied in the 90s. Thank God we didn't have social media then, but they still dug up some photos of me going to Mardi Gras in 97, I think. And Isn't that good, At the same though? time, but at the same time calling me a homophobe. So I'm like, guys, like, it wasn't the right. It wasn't the right Mardi Gras. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that's really extraordinary. And I think the worst moments were when... You realise things have completely spun out of control and, and there's nothing you can do or say to stop it and they're creating this narrative. And the first, the day where the um, the spotlight really got intense, uh, it was Samantha Maiden from news.com and, and I, it sort of dawned on me that she was just trawling everything and just dropping bombs every sort of few hours. And I actually ended up in the hospital. I was at home. I'd sent Dave and the children away at that point. I said, things are going to get really ugly. I think you should just leave. I don't want the children to see me in this state. I'm working massive hours and it's getting ugly. Um, so he left. So my friend came over and I was having a massive panic attack and I'm like, I can't breathe. I've got pain in my abdomen. She said, I'm going to take you to the hospital. I said, no, no, it's fine. Like, I know it's a panic attack. But then when they got up there because of all the issues around heart problems with young people who've had COVID vaccinations, they went through the whole full gamut of everything. And um, that was pretty terrifying, um, being in that sort of a state. And then the day that I realised they um, leaked my nomination application form, which is where you have to disclose everything about your family history, your relationship, your children, um, parts of your finances, parts of your business, uh, my husband's business structure, and I knew that that was out there in the hands of people who wanted to destroy me. And I thought, okay, it's one thing for me to put my hand up 
But if they come after my partner's business, which is our livelihood, they come after my friends who'd written references, some of whom, you know, made breadwinner for their two small children as a single parent, um, working in, you know, sort of the arts and culture, which is quite woke. And I thought if that person, they come after them, oh my, like I was, I actually lost control of my body. I went into shock and I couldn't, I, I, like I was shaking and I was crying. I couldn't, like I, it was an extraordinary feeling. The only time I felt that way was when I lost my daughter at Nippers and we thought she drowned in the surf for 10 minutes and then she'd wandered up the beach and some dad had found her and was taking her up to the surf life-saving. Um, but when I just completely lost control of myself, um, my, my body, it was, um, I thought, God, I've dragged all these other people into it and that is really hard. Um, and when you're driving around and you're getting chased by paparazzi and you've got the cameras in your face and they're chasing, you know, the nanny's car who's picking up the kids from school. And I remember thinking, my God, no wonder like Britney Spears and Princess Diana have, and Demi Lovato had breakdowns, you know, people have breakdowns and they sort mm. of get, you know, mocked for it. And I think I've had this for, for a few days, you know, these people put up with it for decades. It's, it's a horrific feeling where everything you do is questioned, nothing you can do is right, and in the end, you've either got to walk away, grow a thick skin, and like I had politicians calling me, actually from other political parties even, like in direct political opposition and saying, are, are you okay? How is your family going? This is how I cope. Um, so it's basically like you don't look at social media, you just concentrate on what you're doing, you put your head down. Um, you know, my team would show me nice posts from supporters or, 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 cause sometimes you can't help yourself, but look, and then you're like, oh my God, I'm like the, the, the modern day witch that they're trying to burn on social media. Um, and then they'd say, no, no, but look at these nice messages from your supporters and give me your phone, stop looking at social media. Um, and you've just got to keep going. Like if you're doing something you believe in, otherwise, you know, you have to step away. Like I'm, I'm not surprised that people end up going and, you know, going into mental health institutions and things like that. It's horrific. Mm. Well, I think, I think the treatment that, that you suffered during this period, I think it's, it's completely scandalous. And I think more people should know about it, but, but I'd like to know, was there anyone in your corner in the media? Was there anyone standing up for you or, or was it all going one way? Look, that's the interesting thing, you know, about sort of cancel culture. You get cancelled in sort of one area, but then I had a huge groundswell of support on social media. I did. I had people supporting me from all over the country, particularly in WA, strangely, um, all over the world. Um, obviously, in the sex and gender debate, there are people in, in every country, women in every country. Um, they were all, you know, fighting it, the turf army, so to speak. They were all fighting it out on social media, apparently. Um, my campaign team, who was sort of a, a group of volunteers that just stepped up and, and set aside their personal lives, took leave from their work, and they worked so hard for me um, and the campaign. Um they believed in me. I did have support within the party. Like there was obviously, you know, Matt Keane and Senator Bragg who were sort of in the moderate faction, but there were so many people within. People coming up to me at the supermarket, lots of people coming up to me at Hustings, like just tapping me on the shoulder and saying, we believe in what you're doing, keep going, just keep going. Um, Sky News was really good. They were fantastic. They've been uh, very supportive. They've sort of given me a platform um, you know, I'm sort of working with them a few nights a week now. 
So there was support out there, you know. I mean, you've got ABC and SBS who were going, you know, overboard um, and some of the commercial media. But there was a lot of people who were just quietly supporting me. So, yeah. Well, perhaps before we leave the, 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 the political side uh, behind, um, I'd like to know a little bit about this captain's pick. Now, while, while you were campaigning, the media was just obsessed with the fact that you were selected by the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison uh, yeah. to challenge for the seat of, of Warringah. And they snidely used the term, which was, I believe, first coined by Tony Abbott, the captain's pick. Now, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the protocol is with these things, but what, what's wrong with the Prime Minister choosing the candidate? The, the, the former PM, you know, regardless of what, what you think of him, he has le- leadership qualities, foresight, intelligence, keen political sense. I mean, you don't get to be Prime Minister without some of these qualities. Surely a decision from him holds a little bit of weight. So, you know, why does the media carry on like like Hitler tapped you on the shoulder? You know, if you were if you were on the Labor Party ticket, you would be held up as a shining example of, of you know, a strong career woman juggling motherhood and work. Like, you know, what, what what's the deal here with this whole captain's pick? There's a couple of things. So there was something that was fought for called the Warringah Motion, which is where if you'd been a member of the party for, I think it's over two years, you're entitled to have a vote as to who the candidate will be in your electorate. Um, And they were, the grassroots members were denied that by the captain's pick. So there was a lot of sort of internal wrangling um, because uh, Prime Minister Morrison at the time um, and some of his faction wanted to have particular candidates for whatever reason. And Say like with the moderate faction, they don't often like plebiscites because they don't they don't win. You know, it's often the conservative candidate who'll get up. Um, and like you've got Matt Keane at the moment, who's who's upset that Natalie Ward wasn't picked as the candidate for Davidson um, in a plebiscite. Someone else won, so he's going, well, you should have picked this person. And so he's sort of half advocating for captain's picks, while at the same time in the federal election, complaining that I was a captain's pick. So. It's that the members want to have a say in the candidate. Um, but, you know, the Prime Minister, I mean, there was even the Kamenzoli Supreme Court decision where uh, Matthew Kamenzoli brought an action trying to allow for the plebiscite he ultimately lost uh, because the Liberal Party constitution is not justiciable in a court of law. Um, so I, I genuinely think that uh, Morrison did want to have more female candidates. So at out of the nine sort of captains put picks, eight of them were women. So I think it actually was an attempt by them to sort of try and rehabilitate their reputation with women. Um, and, like, that wasn't my choice. Like, I advocated for a plebiscite, but I think, all right, well, I've been chosen now, so, you know, I'll do my job. I'll just put my head down and do my job. Um, but, yeah, it, it, I think they would have used anything that they could have bashed me with um, in the election to just sort of discredit me. It was just one more thing. If I'd been, uh, if I'd been gotten there for a plebiscite, they probably would have bashed the people within Warringah Conference saying, oh, well, all the Liberal Party members in Warringah, like they're all old dinosaurs voting for a Conservative candidate. So, you know, they would have bashed me either way, I think. <laughs> well, perhaps as a little palate cleanser, uh, we'd like to get your opinion on the Cambridge Dictionary's definition of a woman, which was updated recently. It now reads, an adult who lives and identifies as female, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. Um, So I'll just give you an example, an example sentence. She was the first trans woman elected to a national office. So there you go. And the second one is, (laughs) 
Mary is a woman who was assigned male at birth. I don't know why both of these ex- both of the examples are trans examples. Because they're the most vulnerable and oppressed. That's why. Okay. Um, yeah, woman is adult human female. I, I don't even know what living like a woman is or identifying as a woman. I am a human being who is a female. That is determined at conception, observed in utero, uh, observed and recorded at birth, and then I survived childhood and here I am as an adult human who happens to be female. That's all it is. Is living like a woman, what, what does that mean? Like I get my nails done and I flick my hair, um, well, wear probably, a dress? It would be like if I came up, if me or Ricky transitioned, We'd basically get all of our info from Shania Twain's song. We'd just go, and the short skirts, oh, 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 and we'd just like, you know, tick off all the stuff she says in the song. And we'd say, so we've, done, I... we've made it. <laughs> so I'm sitting here in jeans and a T-shirt and I'm living like a man, but I've got earrings and makeup on. So what am I, non-binary? I don't know. <laughs> um... <laughs> well, what's, what, what's amazing about this is that this is the Cambridge... Cambridge Dictionary. It's not. It's not some niche subreddit where someone's like just decided to write a new definition of woman. I mean, this is, this is, this is a proper dictionary. Well, you know, I mean, they all know who a woman is when they want to rent a body for a surrogacy and to buy an egg from. Um, you know, they all know who a woman is when they're being trafficked into the sex trade. Um, they all know who a woman is. Uh, when they know who to put on the mummy track at work because she's had two kids and now all of a sudden her work isn't her number one priority. Like, it's just ridiculous. Um, you know, and this identifies a woman. Like, I honestly, if a bloke wants to put on a dress and wear makeup and call himself, you know, Nancy, like, good on you. Whatever, mate. Like, I'm, I don't have an issue with that. But, you know, we're, we're constantly being told that these trans people are so vulnerable and oppressed and yet we have, with the rapidity with which they have infiltrated every single institution, government department, all the media, you know, they used to have all social media behind them, now not so much with uh, Twitter being taken over by Elon. Um, you know, you have women being sanctioned for, like, in prison if they don't use the right pronouns for the male rapist and murderer who's been put in their jail cell and he complains she will have her sentence extended i mean this has been put into law and policy we've got tribunals that are being empowered that if you you know misgender someone at work that you will be held up um, as committing a hate crime and you'll be sanctioned at work um, dragged to the AHRC tribunal, the Australian Human Rights uh, Tribunal, which happened to my f- friend Sal Grover because she didn't let a biological man on her female-only social media platform. I mean, and now they're taking over the dictionary definition? I mean, I'm sorry, but it, when I hear that they're vulnerable, oppressed and the most marginalised, look, I mean, good on the activists because they've totally achieved that aim of making them out to be at the bottom of the heap in the oppression Olympics, but... Um, you know, they're not vulnerable and oppressed. This is a really bizarre, extraordinary takeover of, you know, society, policy, law, language um, by a group of people who want to untether us from our reality. I mean, to pretend mm. that a man who's popped on a frock it, like, and comes to work, was Frank yesterday, now Francine, now he wants to get into the change rooms at the women's, at the factory in which he works and the women are upset. I mean, the, the, it's just, it's a men's, at its heart, it's a men's rights movement. Um, it's not just men driving this. It's also all the, what we call the handmaids, the women, the progressive women, 
the women who want woke cookies, um, who want to try and avoid the ire of, you know, the trans rights activists and men's rights activists by supporting this movement. Um, I think some of the women are the worst at pushing this ideology into the institutions and the government departments. And I often get told this is a fringe issue and I'm like, I'm sorry, but this is impacting until it's actually coming to your daily life, but it is impacting sport, media, language, education, health, the military. Um, I mean, it's even in the Prime Minister's office, you know, and it, it's, it's a bizarre idea that sex is irrelevant and that all that is important is how you identify. And all you have to do to say you identify as is issue an utterance. You say, I am a woman or I identify as a woman or even under our legislation, it's to have that thought in your head. That's all you have to do. Um, mm. And now all of a sudden women's rights and girls' rights and child safeguarding is just out the window. But you, your uh, um, candidacy did get the issue um, national attention and, and Albo did have to, uh, you know, have an opinion, didn't he? Yeah, he got asked what a woman was. He did answer correctly, you know, adult, human, female, or words to that effect. But when you looked at their policy paper for the federal campaign, buried deep within it uh, for their LGBTIQ++ uh, policy was that, you know, a woman is anyone who identifies as such. So their written policy was contrary to what Albo actually said. Mm. Yeah. Disappointing. Yes. <laughs> Very well, you mentioned handmaidens uh, just before. Now, former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard, who was Prime Minister from 2010 to 2013, made an amendment to the Sex Discrimination Act, a change that seemingly flew un under the radar. And you've written about this uh, in The Spectator, saying that the effect of this on women's sex-based rights in Australia has been profound. Can you give us some background on the legislative change and how it's impacted Australian women? Yeah, so this is, um, as a lawyer, this is probably my favourite little bit of legislation out of everything, what happened here. Um, I find this the most intriguing. 2013, um, there was an omnibus bit of legislation with respect to humans' rights that they tried to push through and it failed. So in order to assuage, you know, the Rainbow Activists, Julia Gillard's government, in her in the dying days of that government, they slipped through 2013 amendments that added in uh, gender identity, sexual orientation and intersex into the Sex Discrimination Act. Now, the Sex Discrimination Act was, um, in 1984, it was enacted to uh, enliven... We had signed something called the United Nations Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And it relied on the constitutional external affairs power, uh, which allows the federal government to give effect to um, international instruments or treaties that they sign. And they thought that CEDAW was so important, they actually put it word for word into the schedule of the legislation. So this was basically to enable women, when they started talking about this in 79, women were not equal in public life. They didn't have, um, I think at that point, they couldn't even get mortgages and bank cards in their own name, you know, that kind of thing. So it was just to uh, equal the playing field, like level the playing field in public life, access to financial services, um, employment, that kind of thing. Um, so fast forward to 2013 and they're sliding in gender identity and the definition for that is so vague as to be meaningless. It's basically you know, whatever you declare your gender identity to be, it doesn't have to be predicated on your sex. It can be things like name, mannerisms, dress or, or anything else. So, I mean, it's just, it's a vague and nebulous con um, concept. 
But what it does is it puts sex and gender identity in direct conflict because you'll have situations where, say, you know, I want to use the Frank at work and the women's change room. You know, you have women asserting that they are entitled to a space to get changed in, they're vulnerable, they're naked in the workplace, uh, and that should be a female-only space for reasons I really shouldn't have to explain to anyone. We understand why. Um, but then you've got Frank, who now comes to work as Francine, and he's demanding entry, and on the basis of his female gender identity, and he's saying, well, you're discriminating against me. You're not allowing me to have a safe space in which to get changed. So who, who wins here? You know, they're in direct conflict, and there was no analysis of that at the time. Um, I've read all the parliamentary papers, all the submissions. There was a few people who objected, uh, such as Sheila Jeffries. Um, she's quite a prominent uh, radical feminist academic from the University of Melbourne. She's now retired. But by and large, it was all like inclusion and, you know, piggybacking on LGB rights. Um, there was no consideration. Even in the Senate paper that's about 150 pages long, there was no mention of the, women, of the impact on women and girls if you allow a male to identify as a woman. None. Um, which I find absolutely extraordinary. So it's taken quite a few years for that to sort of manifest. But because there's no reference in CEDAW to gender identity or sexual orientation or intersex for that matter, there's actually no constitutional validity for those concepts to be in that piece of legislation. So at some point this is going to come to a head in the High Court where there will be a conflict between someone asserting biological like rights on the basis of sex and someone asserting rights on the basis of gender identity and the High Court will have to decide. Um, that's unless, of course, uh, the Parliament decides to preempt the problem and remove it from the legislation. I, I, look, this is not to say that people who are gender non-conforming or want to assert a gender identity, whatever that is, aren't entitled to freedom from discrimination um, and, of course, sexual orientation, but the Sex Discrimination Act was not the place to do it. Um, maybe at the state level with discrimination legislation, that might have been a better place to do it, um, but really we need to sort of leave, I think, sex-based rights alone because women still face discrimination in the workplace. We still face discrimination on the basis of pregnancy and breastfeeding and things like that. So that really needed to remain intact and we deal with these other categories in a, in a different way somewhere else where it's... I also think that biological sex should take precedence over gender identity because, you know, gender identity is fluid. It's ephemeral. It's not even really definable. Um, whereas you can't identify out of your biological sex. You know, it's, it's immutable, it's observable, it's objective. And if you are a female person, you know, like I, don't, I shouldn't have to say not all men, but we are at, like men are faster, bigger, stronger, they have more stamina, the category of male does over female. So in certain arenas, sport, where we're vulnerable, things like that, we should have special protections on that basis. I, I think most reasonable fair-minded people would agree with that. Well, I'm just fascinated as to why this was even, I mean, on the agenda. I remember that time and, I mean, was this a pressing change that needed to happen in 2010 or whenever? And, and, and does Gillard, you know, have any buyer's regret over, over any of this, do you think? Um, Gillard has been really disappointing on this issue. Um, you know, they keep talking about being kind and inclusive and when we hear those words, it's like, oh, okay, so you're... Conversation over. Yeah, I know I know which position you're on. But the 
people who've been pushing for this have been doing so for quite some time. You know, I found papers all the way back to 2008 where they were already laying the groundwork to get gender identity in. So there are people uh, the, uh, who's, who wrote the Yogyakarta Principles. Um, this is not an international instrument, although it is used as a sword to try and insert um, basically trans rights into law and policy all over the world. It was a group of private individuals, some of whom who have come back from that and said we did the wrong thing with the principles. Like it was to do with allowing gay and lesbian and bisexual people to have equal rights in uh, a public life, which which I agree with. But then they added on the, the plus 10, which is to do with the trans. And this was basically a trans rights list of demands. Uh, it was spearheaded by, I think, Martin Rothblatt had something to do with it. He is a very high-profile you know, so-called trans woman. He's involved in Sirius. He's involved in AI. He's involved in... Um, experiments about gestating embryos outside of the womb like he's he's into transhumanism like digital consciousness he's actually quite terrifying um, and he had involvement in this you know years and years ago um, and they've been using the Yogyakarta principles to get you know whatever trans rights is into law and policy and they've been working on this for decades so what we're seeing manifest now has actually been in play for a lot longer than most people are aware of. And one thing that they have done, I think, very successfully is attach themselves to the gay and lesbian rights movement. Um, up until 2015, it wasn't LGBT. It, it just wasn't. The Q wasn't there either. Uh, it was LGB. Even when you look at... Um, like when Stonewall in the UK, uh, you'd look at or like their communications that they'd put out there was there was no mention of tea up until about 2015 but they've glommed on um because you know with gay lesbian and gay rights movement you know the last piece of the legislative puzzle was to get same-sex marriage through which they did successfully which i supported but then they needed the whole movement you know they've got big budgets big bureaucracies um lots of social capital lots of people employed they needed to find a new fight and then along came trans rights and they pivoted to that to remain relevant um, and to remain in existence. Otherwise you would think, well, you've achieved everything you needed to achieve. Wouldn't you just dial it back or maybe start looking at helping gay and lesbian people in the 60 countries where it's still illegal or something like that instead of making all these demands on women um, and families and trying to rewrite reality? <laughs> um. <laughs> well... It's somewhat related. We have to talk about this document. It's a report released a few years back called Only, quote, Only Adults, Good Practices in Legal Gender Recognition for Youth, close quote, with the input uh, of a, basically, so it was done with the input of a huge global law firm. And there's a great article from The Spectator about it, so we might put it in the show notes, and they outline the issue uh, thusly. Quote, a major international law firm has helped write a lobbying manual for people who want to change the law to prevent parents having the final say about significant changes in the status of their own children, close quote. And there's even a, a direct suggestion um, in this document for authors, um, uh, from the authors to, uh, quote, avoid excessive press coverage and exposure. This really does feel like the smoking gun. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I'm very familiar with that document. It is terrifying. 
as, as a parent and a woman seeing what they're doing, trying to avoid media scrutiny, you know, glomming on um, what they want onto more popular um, piece of legislation. Have, they've got gender identity, sex self-ID, basically, into Ireland because they're glommed onto the same-sex marriage. So you'll see those nine sort of strategies or tactics there, one of which you've just outlined um, with the parents, uh, in order to push through gender identity. So, you know, that group has had... Uh, questionable links. I, I believe that they were even kicked out of the UN because there were ties with, you know, pedophilia um, oh, back God. in the day. So also when they look at removing parental authority, you, you've got to sit there. Whenever there are moves afoot to do that, you've got to sit there and think, well, who's behind that? What's the purpose of this? Because as a parent, you know, you are best placed to make decisions for your child. By and large, 99% of parents do their very best to make the right decision for their children. They will lay down their lives. We sacrifice everything <laughs> to to give them a good life and to make sure they're cared for and good nutrition and all that sort of thing. And then you have this organisation come in and try to undermine your authority and say, oh, no, no, if your child declares a trans identity or say that they're gay or lesbian and you don't go along with it, then then you're the one who should be demonised and the state should step in or these activist groups that are not accountable to anybody and take control of your child and take control of their medical decisions um, and push through law and policy to protect that. And that exists. That exists here in New South Wales, Bulletin 55, transgender students in schools. If parents won't go along with the transition, the schools can step in and take over. Same within Victoria, um, and I know parents where that has happened. I am aware of families numbering in the dozens who have lost custody of their child because they've refused to, to go along with this affirmation process. So as a parent, that absolutely terrifies me. When I have my nine-year-old twins come home and tell me, oh, so-and-so said in the playground you can have operation to change sex, so-and-so who's nine has said that they're bisexual, and I'm thinking, you haven't even held hands with a boy. You you stick your fingers down your throat whenever you see your father and I kiss each other. You think sex is disgusting and here you are, your friend, um, saying that they're bisexual. Like, where are you getting these ideas? And then having, you know, I took their, all their screens off them because I thought, well, if they're looking up bisexual, where are they going to end up? Looking at porn or RedTube or whatever they're called and um, going down the rabbit hole. So it's just... it. Yeah, it's really alarming that they're interfering in the integrity of families. Well, perhaps I can ask you for some practical advice. You're a parent, as you said, and uh, and as we've discussed, you have a unique set of skills. Uh, so you're the parent to ask here. What are my options if uh, if sort of trans or gender gender swap contagion spreads at my kid's school? You know. Well, it will because it's already there. Um, they watch a program produced by the ABC called Behind the News that is very much pro-trans. Oh, yeah, we had that. Yep, they had trans men on there. They're celebrating We're at Purple Day, which is literally just an indoctrination exercise to familiarise kids with LGBTIQ ideology. They claim to be like anti-bullying, but they don't offer any programs. They don't offer any resources. It's just all about awareness. Can you be that parent who says, because there was always that kid when I was young who, whenever we were watching something, they, they, the teacher would come over and say, oh, so-and-so, you know, you, you you have to wait outside or whatever. Like their parent had said they weren't allowed to watch. Can I do that about BTN? Can I say I don't want them to watch ABC? I'm actually going to do that next year with my girls. I'm going to withdraw consent um, for them to watch behind the news. Um, yes. Also, when they do, they were doing an out-of-hours, right? like they brought in a third party to do sex ed and I declined 
to participate in that. Um, the Catholic school system has put out a document saying they will not teach gender identity. There are certain schools I'm aware of who will not, you know, a private Catholic girls' school where they had some kid coming along saying they're non-binary or trans or whatever. I'm not sure if it was a male or female child saying that they needed special provisions and the principal just said, we cater to biological females. No, this is not the school for you. So, but that's obviously not advertised. Um, So you've just got to try talk to your kids about this. Like the fact that I have to sit there and say to my kids, oh, if you remove your genitals, if you cut off your penis or cut off your breasts and take testosterone if you're a girl or estrogen if you're a male, try and explain hormones to nine-year-olds, and saying that having surgeries doesn't change your sex, that's not a conversation I want to be having with them. But I also don't want them to, you know, think that they can change their sex or you can't inoculate them against what their peers are going to tell them at sport and school um, entirely. They will be exposed to these ideas, but you just need to make sure you have dinner with them every night, everything's up for conversation on the table, and just keep them off social media. Just don't even give them a screen. Like, I locked them down so all they could have was ABC Kids, which obviously is now infested with, you know, ideology. So I'm like, God, I don't even know what to let them watch on telly. We just watch a movie together as a family on a Friday night. That's it. You you just have to control that and, you know, fill their spare time with sport and playing outside. That's how I manage it. But why don't some par- some of the parents caught up in this just move across town or interstate? And I know it's expensive and people might not have the means, but... Detransitioning is also expensive. Mm. Look, I am aware of parents who have done that. Um, I have spoken with my partner and we've thought, you know, if our daughters get into a situation where they're developing an eating disorder or severe, the target of severe bullying or this trans thing, uh, we're just, we're lucky. My best friend has a massive farm outside of um, a country town over the Blue Mountains. I said, well, we'll just pull them out of school. One of us will walk away from my career. We'll go out there, we'll homeschool. She can work the horses. She can work the farm. No internet. And we just, we've, we have heard of parents where they've literally just stepped out, you know, away from everything, um, gone completely offline, homeschooled. And, and it takes time and your kid, often hates your guts and the, the says, first the first week yeah. at the farm they're like it, this, oh. is that is that horse trans and you go yeah. no no that's not a thing out here all right that's something that your idiot friend allison made up okay there yeah so and you also you have to be the parent you know there's sort of i think there's a lot of um you know podcasts out there sort of trying to like explore this argument like you you don't want to be kid's friend you have to be their parent and sometimes it means that they hate you and they think that you're wrong and um it can be really tough you know or parents saying you know you hear them oh the wi-fi and they're online all the time i'm like well turn it off turn the wi-fi off and take the screen away and yes they'll scream and yell and things will be horrible but it's better than having to put together your daughter when she's 22 and removed her breasts and has a beard and a deep voice and she's possibly infertile and she absolutely hates herself and hasn't come out of her room for three months. You know, what's the alternative? You have to be strong and, and parent your children. Don't give in to everything that they want. If they come home and say, I'm a boy, you go, don't be ridiculous, darling. You can play rugby, shave your head, absolutely fine, which is what my six-year-old did. I said, but you are a girl. You can't change that fact. Well, maybe while we still have you here, we should talk a little bit about sport because you are passionate about uh, female sport. 
Um, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit here about uh, Zali Stegall and Kieran Perkins. Do you think it's a bit rich that, that these former Olympic medal-winning athletes, Kieran Perkins, a swimmer, and Zali Stegall, uh, I believe a skier, um, who is now the member for Warringah, I believe, uh, do you think it's a bit rich that they advocate for the inclusion of trans athletes in elite sport? Because back in the day, Zali didn't have to compete with superior biological entities and Kieran is a man, so he only ever had to compete against other men. They got their medals in the 1990s and the, and the early 2000s and now they're happy jeopardising women's achievement in sport. Are you surprised that there are any former elite sports people full stop that are on board with this? because they obviously yes. know how hard it is to compete at that level. Oh, absolutely. They have completely betrayed women and girls. Uh, Kate Jenkins at the AHRC, who was behind the guidelines for trans inclusion that's opened women's sports up to a free-for-all, um, absolute betrayal of women and girls. She cannot call herself a women's advocate or a feminist, in my view, neither can Sally. Um, you know, Kieran Perkins even said that not allowing men to compete in female sports would result in quote-unquote human carnage. I'm like, what does that even mean, Kieran? What, these people are going to go and kill themselves? Are you serious? And if someone is that fragile that they're going to commit suicide because they can't play on their netball team that they want, I'm pretty sure they've probably got a whole host of other problems. Um, but if Kieran had had to compete against a male who, who was doping, you get an 8 to 10 performance, 8 to 10% performance advantage if you're doping. Um, and men in speed and stamina have, it's anywhere between sort of 10 and I think 15%. If you had to compete against a doping male, do you reckon the Australian Sporting Authorities would have tolerated that? Do you reckon Kieran Perkins would have won his... Um, his event and now be sitting there earning hundreds of thousands of dollars on the taxpayer purse being the CEO of Sport Australia? I don't think so. So he's a complete hypocrite and they have absolutely pulled up the ladder behind them. Zali Stegall calling parents transphobic for being, for being concerned about the integrity of their daughter's sports. I mean, how dare she? You know, she's sitting there now, a parliamentarian, because of her high profile because she was the first Australian to win a medal at the Winter Olympics and I congratulate her for those efforts. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been, how dedicated you have to be. But the fact that she's now quite prepared to allow men and boys to just, just identify as a woman and all, that's all they have to do in some sports, tick the box, um, and they can compete against women. And no matter how hard women compete against how much they sacrifice, how much they train. If you've got a like-for-like -like male and female age, sort of general athleticism, training program, height and weight, the male will always outperform the woman, always. And the mm. fact that this is being ripped away from girls and anyone who is sitting there saying, you know, this is actually unfair, this is actually unsafe in contact sports and I would, and combat sports and collision sports. You know, I'd say you know, volleyball, basketball, netball, they're contact sports. People have horrible injuries when they crash into each other. And the fact that they're allowing men and boys on when we know, you know, high school soccer teams of 15-year-old boys beat the World Cup soccer players, the Americans, um, when we have, you know, 10,000 men and boys able to outrun the world's fastest female. I mean, it's just an absolute nonsense. And the cravenness and the lack of courage that these people are showing, like Zali and Kieran, the obsequiousness of, of them just bending the knee to this trendy ideology, I'm sorry, but it just, it's really, 
I've got three little girls who play a number of st- sports and, you know, I have a visceral reaction to that. You know, I spend my weekend, Saturday, Sunday morning, you know, many afternoons a week driving all over the northern beaches and you're going to turn around and tell me I don't have skin in the game on this because I wasn't an elite athlete and that I'm not entitled to have opinion and say, actually, we don't consent to this. As a, pe- as a parent and a woman, a mother of daughters, I don't consent to this. Because the policies also allow men and boys to come into the change rooms and toilets. And what do you think is going to happen when we make it easier for predators to get access to victims? And I'm not saying trans women are predators. I'm saying men and boys. There will always be some who will take advantage of those opportunities. We know a very small percentage and they ruin it for everyone. Um, So I think we need to have some people be more brave and, you know, stop being such a hypocrite and stand up. Do you, do you know who Fallon Fox is? I do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, for our, for the benefit of our audience, uh, she's a transgender woman who competed in mixed martial arts in the UFC. I believe she's retired now. Uh, now, she fought her first two matches against biological women who were unaware that she was born male, and she completely destroyed her opponents and, and, and completely messed up their faces. Uh, I'm surprised Fallon Fox is not mentioned more in this debate. Do you think it's going to take like a big sporting injury to wake people up to the dangers of, of biological men competing against women, particularly in, in contact sports? It's already happening. It happened in um, ice hockey. A woman was concussed. And women suffer concussions at lower impacts, at lower speeds, longer recovery, worse outcomes. Um, you know, it's happening in roller derby. It's really serious injuries. Um, I mean, Fallon Fox is an ex-Marine. He's built like a brick shit house, and he broke Tamika Brent's skull in five places in a TKO. She was one of the, the best cage fighters uh, in the world. She said she has never felt strength like it, and he lied about his biological sex. And now a lot of the policies are saying... Under privacy principles, you can't ask someone their sex. That will not be disclosed to you as a female competitor or uh, the mother or the parents of of female competitors. Um, So we are absolutely going to see more injuries. I mean, we're hearing broken legs, concussions. Uh, One girl, uh, she hasn't restored her vision, playing high school volleyball. He smacked her in the head with the ball. Um, It's already happening. So what's it going to take? I, I think there'll be even be dead women dead on the field before they wake up to themselves. I, I honestly think uh, they they just don't care. I don't know what they're f- afraid of. The Twitter pylons, uh, if it's a men's rights movement, I know the IOC mainly consulted only with trans rights activists. They said that they consulted with women's groups uh, or scientists or sports ethicists who are on our side, but. Speaking within the networks that I'm plugged into, there was a couple of perfunctory telephone conversations, whereas major trans rights activists were flown to Lausanne, um, got to sit on um, in meetings for days on end to put their case, uh, but no one really spoke to the women. No. So they're not listening to women. They, they just they don't care. <laughs> I start, I'm starting to realise they, they just don't care. Mm. It's very demoralising. Well, I... I think sport is only really inclusive because we have categories, you know, like say weightlifting a 50 kilogram man, it doesn't compete against a man that's, that's a hundred kilos, you know, do, do we just need a, a, a trans category in sport? Is there support for this? Well, I'm not averse to that. If that's 
what it takes to, for these people to feel included, you know, absolutely would support that. But don't take away from women's resources or expect women to advocate for it. Um, you know, we've got our own battles to fight. But I think it was the New York or Boston Marathon and they had men, women, non-binary. <laughs> and, of course, the man won this, won the non-binary. Um, so then they were saying, well, maybe we need to have assign female at birth non-binary and assign male at birth non-binary and you're like well there you go well you've just proved our point that there are differences between the biological sexes no matter how you identify but if that's what it's going to take fine I support that but there must be a dedicated female only sports category um and you know we can have the men's open mixed Oftentimes the men's has always been open mixed but because the women can't compete at that level it's just always sort of been regarded as the men's um, you know, and I'm happy for trans people or people who identify as trans to have their own categories. No issue with that. But please don't be taking away from the women's resources. Go and get your own resources in addition to. I think we have a problem, Catherine, and you mentioned this in an interview. To a certain degree, we're talking to ourselves, if you know what mm. I mean. We're, we, we have, we're having trouble communicating that there's even an issue uh, with all of this stuff to people like I always bring these up, like my wife's friends, for example, or moderate normies, how do we bridge this gap? Because when they hear about some of this stuff, we're the ones that come off crazy, especially now that we know that there kind of is a, a cabal of, <laughs> of rich transhumanists, <laughs> you know? I mean, <laughs> I'll leave that. But, but, but how, yeah. how, how do you reckon we bridge the gap for them? Look, we just don't stop talking. And you support the people who are prepared to stick their head above the parapet. Uh, having those conversations at barbecues is really important. I mean, it's you can't really just come straight out with, oh, someone who raped and murdered three little girls is now locked in a cell with women and he's raping and impregnating women. I mean, you sound crazy, but mm. you sort of work your way way up to that. Sports, obviously, is a really good one to start with. Um, you know, if at barbecues it's mothers, you know, maybe you talk about children's education and the fact that kids are being exposed to all these ideas within the curriculum. Uh, I know like SBS has been brave um, with Insight. They've started to investigate some of these tri tricky subjects and they're trying really hard to be balanced. They had one on the sports issue. They had one on gender. I really commend them for that. Uh, ABC is completely captured. Um, they ought to hang their heads in shame. Uh, they did do a big ideas where they had some academics discussing this uh, within the sort of university context, which I do commend them for that. But, you know, they bookended the panel by having, you know, a trans a male identifying as a trans woman, you know, talking about his lived experience for six minutes, um, which gets a bit tedious. And then they bookended it at the end with some sort of high-profile trans activist from Argentina discussing how trans rights are human rights for, you know, a good sort of six or seven minutes. I was like, that was completely unnecessary. That was not relevant to the rest of the panel. But um, I'm glad to see they asked that making some tentative steps. So I think we all just need to keep talking and talking to as many people as we can. Yeah. Um, the ABC is going to have to come around. But um, they, they are signed up to ACON, which is the Ag AIDS Council of New South Wales. Uh, they receive significant government funding. Um, they have what we call the Australian Workplace Equality Index, which is a program that all government departments, all the big corporates, banks, law firms, they're all, they basically outsource their diversity and inclusion policies to ACON. And they have this checklist and they have to implement all these things into internal policies, um, advertising, 
external communications with the public, you know, conduct of the CEO, conduct of um, employees and so forth. And it's basically a box-ticking exercise and it's to embed like this worldview around gender identity into those sorts of policies. So they have a real monopoly on that um, and that's what the Big Ideas ABC program actually was um, discussing as well. Um, and like the ABC signed up to ACON. So if they have programs that are pro-trans, they get points. If they have programs that ACON perceives are damaging to the narrative, you know, they'll lose 20 points. But if they hire a trans activist in a position of prominence, they'll get two points. So they've got a real sort of commercial imperative if they want to get, you know, platinum status with this index um, how to can we embed get, the ideology. How can we get them to break away from that group, just like um, the BBC and Stonewall? How can we How can we do that? Well, I think by, by highlighting it. Um, by putting in FOIs to try and get visibility on it, um, putting in complaints to the press council, um, you know, in the media where you see that something is actually factually incorrect um, or unbalanced. And I think if enough people start complaining and highlighting what they're doing, um, if there's any employees at the ABC listening and there are things that they're upset with, you know, Having the courage to try and figure out a way where they can broach that um, at work and say, actually, I'm not, I'm not happy with this. I, I don't want to put pronouns in my bio. You know, I don't want the toilets on my floor to be mixed sex. I don't want to go along to this rainbow cupcake morning tea again. I've, I've actually got work to do. <laughs> you know, um, I think those sort of small acts of resistance. Um, you know, I appreciate a lot of people, they can't, they can't risk their jobs, you know, big mortgages, families to support. Um, but I'm sort of also losing patience with that because I've seen enough people sort of lose jobs, be dragged through uh, disciplinary processes, tribunal processes, where, you know, I think there is a false consensus around this and we do have to reach a tipping point where everyone goes, actually, we don't agree that men can be women. I think we're going to need to see a few more examples of where women have been actually harmed I mean, women like me going and speaking publicly, we often have people, you know, very violent, aggressive individuals, masked, uh, gloved, you know, they do the Antifa black block thing to come and intimidate women um, here in Australia, also overseas, uh, in the States, in Britain, and they get, like, some of them showing up with bags of knives, you know, and, and throwing glitter in, in women's head, you know, black women who have you know, the, the luxuriant dreadlocks and people throwing glitter in their hair, pushing them. One woman had her hand crushed. A trans rights activist grabbed her hand, crushed it with his own two hands. She's a dance teacher. Um, women being spat on, um, even gays and lesbians who are standing up at pride um, parades for being able to be same-sex attracted, you know, having coffee, like liquids poured on them, being pushed over. Uh, older people being pushed over, uh, I mean, it's just disgraceful. And I think that the media probably need to start reporting on this properly, not just people on Twitter. Um, Sky News often will cover some of these issues, but I think once people actually start to see, you know, when they talk about trans rights or human rights, who they're defending, when you see some of these men who are like six foot five, you know, enraged, um, wearing, you know, some cheap Vinnie's dress, and screaming in a woman's face, burn the witch, burn the witch, um, it's kind of like this, this is who you're defending. 
when you when you're talking about trans rights like this person is dangerous <laughs> um but oftentimes if it's just you know the mums at playgroup you know they're not on twitter they're not seeing it they're not looking on daily wire or the alternative news sources so yeah we've got a real issue with the media not covering it properly Mm. Well, perhaps while we still have you here, Catherine, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about Save Women's Sport Australasia and, and where that's at and, uh, and, and what's happening there? So, uh, look, in this, this year I have kind of stepped away from it um, a little bit just because of the campaign and then I had an, an arm injury which sort of derailed most of my year um, that I've recovered from. But essentially Save Women's Sports Australasia was a group that was formed, New Zealand and Australian women, to raise awareness of the policies that were removing biological sex from um, sex, uh, sports guidelines um, and removing the sex-based categories. Um, and in our view, this removes fair competition and player safety for women and girls. Uh, there is also the um, concept of inclusion within sport and what was happening was inclusion was is being prioritised over fair competition and player safety um, basically to the exclusion of, of every other consideration. So we need to include people in the category for sport that they want to be included in based on their identity. So when we have men and boys who can simply tick a box and show up and play in women's sports, whether it be community, because community feeds elite, and we know that women and girls self-exclude they become demoralised and don't want to train anymore. I've heard many of those stories. Um, they miss out on opportunities to progress to the next level. So saying that community sports should be exempt from, um, you know, sex-based categories, I think is is dangerous and foolish and is betraying women and girls. Um, so Save Women's Sports Australasia was created to raise awareness because there was no pushback at the time when Sport Australia and AHRC released their trans inclusion guidelines. Uh, it was all just very pro-trans, pro-gender identity, no respect for women's privacy, privacy, dignity, safety in overnight accommodation and toilets and change rooms. Um, and there needed to be a voice in that space and, and no one else appeared to be doing it. Um, and I thought, God, I'm spending all my spare time driving my daughters around to sport. <laughs> I have a vested interest and I started to speak publicly on that issue. So... At the moment um, in Australia, Senator Claire Chander put up some um, legislation to clarify within the Sex Discrimination Act we can have sex-based categories because, as we discussed before, we've got sex and gender identity in conflict. So in Section 42, which is for the basis of acknowledging biological sex categories in sport, they've now put in gender identity. So it's basically turned into a jumble. So who takes precedence? The man with the gender identity, the female athlete um so her legislation was going to clarify that um that has been put on the shelf obviously now that the liberals um are not in government um and also over in new zealand uh for any new zealand listeners they put out guidelines that have gone completely off the reservation and it's basically women's sports is just a free-for-all there are no protections not even in rugby so um yeah, we're not actually, although awareness has certainly increased and polling that we have done shows that the vast majority of the public do agree with the position that female should have a dedicated women's only sports category, even Greens voters, 55%. Um, even in America, majority Democrats agree with that premise. I think it's UK, Ireland, Scotland, all wherever polling has been done. 
Um, so the governments were pushing this through by listening to the activists. Uh, they're actually running counter to what the population wants, um, what the community actually wants. So, yeah, we're kind of in a tough spot at the moment and I think we're going to have to have our own Leah Thomas uh, maybe in Australia where we do start to see some of our, our golden female athletes pushed off the podium um, to actually realise that we're, we're going down the wrong path here. Well, Catherine, we've run out of time, unfortunately. Uh, so <laughs> just got one last question we ask everyone. We'd love to know what you're reading right now. Oh, what am I reading right now? Oh, gosh, do you want me to show you the pile of books next to my please, bed? I sort please. of. <laughs> um, so I'm reading Margaret Canine's Boxing Butterfly. She is um, a Crown Prosecutor who is now a criminal defence barrister. I'm reading uh, Jim Mullen's book on China on our doorstep. I'm re reading Laurie, Louise Parry's book at the moment as well. She's great. We, we had her on a couple of, a couple of months ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she was really interesting. And then... Um, I also, I do read a lot of popular fiction as a bit of escapism from all of this. So uh, I just read the latest um, Lee Child's um, Jack Reacher, I'm a bit of Jack Reacher, and I read a bit of Chick Lit just to be able to um, to check out and, and put all this, <laughs> this political uh, culture wars to the side and just be able to um, have a bit of escapism. Yeah. Mm, for sure, yeah, it's definitely important to um, make a monastery, monastery for the mind, as John likes mm. to say quite often. Well, Catherine, we'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you for, for fighting the good fight and doing, doing the work that you're doing. And we'd, we'd love to check in with you again sometime, sometime in the future. Thank you so much, Ricky and John. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.